What is the kingdom of heaven like? That may not be our most pressing question every day as Christians, but it's the question that Jesus, the Messiah, was repeatedly interested in asking and answering. Seven times in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll recall, Jesus told a story, which we call a parable, that began, the kingdom of heaven is like. And the phrase kingdom of heaven shows up over 30 times in Matthew's Gospel overall. Why is this such a big deal? We need to know what the kingdom of heaven is like because we live in the kingdoms of earth. The kingdoms of earth control large portions of our lives. The powers that be, as we say, both material powers or spiritual powers, these powers shape our lives, our finances, our freedoms, our fate sometimes. But they also want to shape our hearts, our loves, our desires, even our imaginations. The kingdoms of earth tell us that the way things are is the way things have to be. And what is the way things are? What is the status quo in the kingdoms of earth? Two words, according to scripture, sin and death. These are the two primary exports of the kingdoms of earth, and their business is booming. To put it another way, sin and death are the rulers of this present age. And these rulers of the earth like to tell us what's possible and what's impossible. They like to set the boundaries of reality, to remake reality in their own image, because they believe that their power over their subjects, over us, is absolute. Historians have a term for this, right? Propaganda. In our scripture reading today from the Old Testament, our long scripture reading, we encounter two kings of Israel named Jeroboam who tried to do just that, to invent their own reality, their own propaganda. Now, you may have assumed because of the way I set up the scripture reading that this is the same king Jeroboam in that entire reading, but these are actually two Jeroboams, Jeroboam I and Jeroboam II, whose reigns were a century and a half apart, actually, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Both of these Jeroboams ran a propaganda campaign that fused or confused Israel's kingship and Israel's worship. Both of these Jeroboams asserted that the sanctuary, the house of God, was the king's sanctuary to manage as he pleased and to bring glory to himself. But both Jeroboams were dead wrong, and they were confronted about their wrongness by who? By a prophet, a prophet of God. A prophet is a person, basically, who is charged to bring a word from the Lord. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. And in the Old Testament, we find what I would call inner prophets and outer prophets, uh, maybe the, the contrast could be prophets who are at the center of society and enjoy a little bit of position and privilege, and then prophets who find themselves more on the margins and are a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, Stephen even mentioned some of these marginal prophets in his Lord's Supper talk. Kings often liked to keep the inner prophets around, right? They liked the inner prophets better because they liked their message. They liked the message of the court prophets, the temple prophets, because these were yes-men, who supported the king's royal propaganda. Now, some inner prophets in the Old Testament, like Nathan or Isaiah, they weren't like that. They were actually faithful to the word of the Lord, and they were willing to speak truth to power when necessary to kings like David and Hezekiah when God called them to do so. But for the most part, God's faithful prophets in the Old Testament are mostly those outer prophets, the prophets on the edges of society, the prophets who were nobodies, Ordinary men who took their lives in their hands by speaking God's sharp words to Israel and Israel's kings. They dared to challenge the royal propaganda, the reigning narrative, the king's version of reality. They dared to assert as prophets that their word from God stood outside and above royal propaganda, the reigning narrative. They dared to assert that God, that God's sanctuary was not the king's sanctuary, and that the king himself was subject to a greater king that they were speaking for. In other words, by saying, thus saith the Lord, prophets proclaimed what we sometimes call an upside-down kingdom, in which kings were actually subjects. They were subjects to the word of the prophets, who were in turn subject to God, the true king. So, 
In today's lesson, uh, which will focus on that first part of the reading, 1 Kings 13, we will consider one Old Testament story of prophets confronting kings and thereby teaching us something of what the kingdom of heaven is really like. This will be an unusual lesson in that the, the main section of the lesson will mostly just be reading the story, encountering the story. We're doing it this way because the story is not all that familiar to most people. It's a strange story. It's a perplexing story. It's a head-scratcher. And this story in 1 Kings 13 offends our modern sense of justice. Many people who read this story are even scandalized by God's actions. However, the scandal of this story, the strangeness of this story, is exactly the point of the story. Like the parables of Jesus, this Old Testament story is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. Because we are so tightly held captive by the kingdoms of this world, we need to know what the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, is really like. Because we live in a world enslaved by sin and death, we need to be liberated by the gospel of grace and resurrection, the gospel of King Jesus. So, I invite you to participate fully in hearing and pondering this weird Old Testament story, to let the scandal and offense of this story hit you, do its work in you, and open our hearts to the surprising way in which God's prophetic word brings life out of death. But before we get into this story, um, we need to say a few words about this section of scripture that we're in. Remember that we're working through a little sermon mini-series for a few weeks called The Bible as a Kingdom Story, in which we're tracing the theme of God's kingdom through the entire narrative of scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. Our first three lessons are about the Old Testament, the first major act of God's kingdom story. Last week, Monty kicked off this Old Testament section by looking at the theme of kingdom in the first section of the Old Testament, the law or the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament. Well, in this section or this lesson, we're covering the next section, the prophets. We're looking at the Old Testament in a sort of three-part scheme here that corresponds to the ancient Jewish way of arranging the Old Testament. Many times in our Bible classes, we'll speak of a four-part structure to the Old Testament, and that's fine too. But this is an even older arrangement that to divide the Old Testament into three parts, law, prophets, and writings. You may have heard these by their Hebrew names, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, and there's an, actually an acronym for that, uh, Tanakh. This is what many Jewish people call the Old Testament, the Tanakh, based on that little acronym, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Law, Prophets, and Writings. This may not be the divisions that you're used to seeing, but it's a very ancient way of doing it, and we even get a hint of this little three-part order of the Old Testament from Jesus himself. You may remember, Monty mentioned this verse last week, Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples, everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms would be the, the biggest and first book of the writings. And so he's alluding to this three-part structure of the Old Testament. And he says all of that speaks of him, which is quite the claim. So um, what, what books of the Old Testament are in these three categories? Uh, Monty's talked about this, probably talking about it again next week, but let's just remind ourselves, and you can look at the list, and maybe look at how this is different from how we arrange it sometimes in a four-part section. This is the, the ancient Jewish ordering. It's a bigger collection, the prophets, um, in this ordering than when we, in our section that we sometimes call major and minor prophets. In this ordering, the prophets consist of former prophets and latter prophets. The former prophets are four books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Samuel and Kings are each regarded as one book. And these are followed by four books of prophetic oracles, the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. What we call the minor prophets, 12 books, was actually regarded in ancient Jewish tradition as one book, the Book of the Twelve, Hosea through Malachi. Uh, so these books of prophetic speech are together known as the latter prophets. Well, former and latter mostly refer to the time periods that these sections cover. Um, they do overlap, however, on a particular time period in Israel's history, the 8th century BC through the 6th century BC. Both the former and latter prophets talk about this time period, which is roughly the time period when God's people were facing punishment for idolatry, and, and they were about to be exiled to foreign lands. And this period of Israel's his, his, history roughly corresponds to our book of 2 Kings. 
And God sent many prophets to his people and their kings during this time, both to warn them, but also to comfort them that there would be uh, a, a return, there would be a consolation after their exile. Well, obviously in this arrangement, the prophets is a very huge section of the Old Testament, whether you count it as eight books or as 21 books. Um, either way, it's 380 chapters covering at least 800 years of history, and Monty conveniently decided to go out of town and ask me to preach one sermon on this collection of books. So, buckle up. <laughs> Just kidding. The former prophets and latter prophets uh, largely run on parallel tracks, giving us, I would say, two complementary perspectives on Israel's history and God's, uh, as God's co covenant people in the land of Canaan. And as I said, the former prophets, Joshua through Kings, are mostly narratives, stories. We, we cover these in our Bible classes, right? Um, and the latter prophets are mostly, on the other hand, prophetic oracles, words of judgment and salvation spoken by God through a prophet. But I think it's significant that in this ancient way of looking at the Old Testament, both the narratives and the oracles are called prophets, former and latter prophets. Even the stories are called prophets. So even the stories are a prophetic word in the way that they're told, not just because prophets pop up as characters every now and then in the prophets, but because the stories themselves, as inspired scripture, are prophetic oracles to us. They are God speaking a word to us if we are willing to hear it. In the telling of Israel's story, even though it happened long ago, God is speaking a new word to us. Let's listen up. Um, just a bit about the uh, the geography of Israel, as a reminder, the former prophet books of Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, the first three of the former prophets, cover Israel's early history in the land, the time when all the 12 tribes received their promised allotments, and they struggled to hold on to those land allotments and ultimately opted for a king to lead them. That's how we got Saul and then David and Solomon. And so we call this early period maybe the tribal period or the United Kingdom um, and so figures like Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Saul, David, these are some of the major characters in these books, in this part of the story. But then uh, the book of Kings describes a roughly 200-year period of rupture between the southern tribes, now known as Judah, and the northern tribes, now who take on the name Israel. This is what we call the period of the divided kingdom. David's heirs, with whom God had made a special royal covenant, they sat on the southern throne in the city of Jerusalem, where God's temple was. That's the lower yellow section on the map. While the upstart rulers in the north, beginning with Jeroboam I, ruled over a much larger, wealthier area from the capital cities of Tirzah and then Samaria. This is the upper green section on the map. As we saw in the scripture reading, a significant consequence of this divide, the civil war, was the fracturing of worship, with the northern kingdom setting up rival worship shrines in the border towns of Dan and Bethel. I circled them in red. It's kind of hard to see, but they put them at the north and south borders of their kingdom. Um, even if these shrines were intended originally to honor Yahweh, the true God of Israel, the prophets still condemned these shrines because they weren't the shrines that God commanded in Jerusalem. And they actually equated these shrines with idolatry, which is in fact what they ended up leading to. Again, Stephen alluded to Ahab and some of the northern kings that turned this into a Baal worship. And so political allegiances became entangled with religious allegiances. Does that ever happen in the kingdoms of earth in our experience? Absolutely. And the religious influence of the north, Israel, became a frequent stumbling block for the south, Judah, despite the warnings of these fringe prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Hosea. But even though these words were largely ignored by kings and lay people alike, the prophet's testimony was still stored up by God as a witness against them. They had heard they had just chosen not to listen. So the prophetic word still remained a judgment against the people and their kings. The kings of Judah and Israel may have had some measure of power, but they still stood under the prophetic word of the true king, God. Remember, even though this Old Testament book that we're talking about is called Kings, the section that it belongs to is called Prophets, which I think is another nice little hint that kings go under prophets not the other way around. So in other words, the kings of Israel and Judah, especially Israel, may have thought that power in their kingdom looked something like 
what I've pictured on the screen, a triangle with kings at the top, with prophets and priests below them to serve their needs, their wishes, and even their egos sometimes. But in fact, this section of the Old Testament, the prophets, is at pains to show that kings, as powerful as they were or thought they were, they were actually subject to the word of prophets and priests, inasmuch as prophets and priests were spokesmen for God himself, the true king. Remember Deuteronomy 17 from Mani's lesson last week, where Moses instructs Israel's future kings to do what? To write a copy of the law of God, so that the king's heart would not be lifted above his subjects, and so that he would learn to fear God like his brethren that he ruled. And so perhaps the best triangle that we could capture this point with is this one, in which all of Israel's leaders, prophets, priests, and kings, take their proper place under God's authority and direct their people's hearts and loyalties to the true king, to God alone. Well, do you remember this passage that was the end of Don's scripture reading from Amos, where the priest of Bethel gets all of this exactly backwards? Amaziah, who is the custodian priest of this illegitimate northern worship site, Bethel, tries to send a southern prophet, Amos, back where he came from. Mind your own business, southern prophet. Why? Because Bethel, he says, is what? The king's sanctuary, a temple of the kingdom. That's quite a phrase. Remember, this sermon and our theme this year is supposed to be about the Bible's kingdom story. Well, here's some pretty explicit kingdom language from Amaziah the priest. His point is clear. This worship site is an outpost of the king. It is an annex of royal power. It is a tool of the political state. The king gets to decide what happens here and who says what and what language about God is acceptable. What is Amos' reply to all this? Thus says the Lord. Amos has no political axe to grind. He's not a priest. He's not a politician. He says he's barely even a prophet. He didn't want to be a prophet. He's not doing it for the paycheck. He's doing it merely because God plucked him out of obscurity on a Judahite farm and compelled him to go and speak a divine word to the northern kingdom. Amos is thus following the unorthodox path, the unglorious, unsafe political path of people like Moses, David, and maybe Jimmy Carter, a rural farm boy to big national influencer, right? Well, it's actually a lot more extreme than that. What Amos is doing is as if an unknown goat herder from the suburbs of Mexico City were to travel on foot illegally across the border to Washington, D.C. to take on the powerful political lobbying industry. How do you think the powers that be in Washington would react to this weird prophet from the South other than to say, what are you even doing here? Go home. Go back where you came from. Why does God find obscure people like Moses, David, and Amos and thrust them into the spotlight? I'll let you be the judge of Jimmy Carter. but uh, Because that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. In the midst of human systems of power, God consistently does a strange new thing. And so, at last, let's turn to our main text in 1 Kings 13, uh, where this idea of kings under prophets under God will play out in an actual story from the prophets. It's a, again, it's a strange little story, so we just got to hang on to the end. The key figures of this story are two prophets and two kings. Uh, one prophet and one king from each kingdom, north and south. On the side of the northern kingdom, we have an unnamed old prophet of Bethel, presumably someone who was part of the illegitimate worship uh, that took place there, a prophet in the northern king's service, and a minister of propaganda for that king. Well, the northern king that we're talking about is Jeroboam I, the first king of the northern kingdom, who was the one who set up this shrine, as we saw in the scripture reading, because he didn't want people to go down to Jerusalem. This story takes place in the late 10th century BC, shortly after Solomon's kingdom was divided between his son Rehoboam and this upstart guy Jeroboam. On the southern side, we have the unnamed younger prophet, or sometimes called man of God here, who is called by God to come up from Judah, very much like Amos was, to cross the border and speak out against this shrine at Bethel. And this prophet also foretells of a future southern king, Josiah, 
who won't come along for a long time, but who would undo the religious damage being done by Jeroboam at Dan and Bethel. And so the four characters in this story set up a double contrast between the two kingdoms, which we'll see as the story plays out. So the beginning of the story we've already read, so I've kind of bracketed that out. It's this bit about Jeroboam deciding why he wants to build these shrines. Let's continue on to 1 Kings 12, verse 31 where he says, it says, he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month in the month that he had devised from his own heart. That's an important expression. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. That's the scene. That's setting the stage for what's going to happen between kings and prophets. Uh, just a little bit of um, geographical interest here. Um, as it happens, the northern shrine of the northern kingdom, Dan, has been excavated, and it's now a national park, somewhat ironically, in modern Israel, on the northern border with Syria and Lebanon. The actual altar is gone now, it's lost to the sands of time, but a modern steel frame has been erected on its foundation to give visitors an idea of its dimensions. It would have been huge, impressive. This shrine was built by Jeroboam I and renovated by Jeroboam II 150 years later. Um, here are a couple photos I took of the site in 2020 during the pandemic. That was fun. Um, since Bethel has not been excavated, the Dan site gives us our best physical evidence of what was happening down at Bethel, too. In fact, this illustration that you can read at the Dan Park, this little poster, actually, uh, in, in making its illustration, cites in Hebrew and English over on the right, sorry, it's hard to see, th these verses from 1 Kings 12 about Bethel that we just read. So this would have been a bustling site with enormous religious activity, political activity, economic activity. It was certainly no place for a hillbilly Judah prophet to show up and start yelling. But that's what happens. So getting back to the story, we've already read this initial oracle from the man from the south um, in verses 1 through 3, where he says this altar is going to be torn down. So uh, what happens as a result of that oracle? Let's look at beginning in verse 4. When the king, this is Jeroboam, heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So in these verses, two signs of the prophet's truthfulness are given. The altar spontaneously cracks and kind of falls apart like the stone table in the Narnia books, right? And Jeroboam's hand is spontaneously withered and then restored by the prophet's mercy. The prophet refuses a meal with the king because that meal would have been a symbol of acceptance and fellowship with the king who remains under God's judgment, and the prophet wants nothing to do with, with any of that. And so the story could have ended here at verse 10 with the prophet departing, but the story is actually just getting started, and it's about to get a lot weirder. So let's see what happens next, verse 11. Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told to their father the words that he'd spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? He said, I am. He said to him, come home with me, eat bread. He said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. He said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into the house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. 
So he, that is the man of Judah, went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. So there's an odd mix of hostility and hospitality in between these two prophets. One is old, the other is young, evidently. One is a northern Bethel shrine prophet. One is a southern prophet who has just spoken judgment against the Bethel shrine by the word of the Lord. One wants to get back to his home. The other wants him to come home instead to his home. They're on opposite sides of this story. And yet there still is some kind of weird connection or bond between them. But lest we be taken in by this seemingly kindly old prophet, the narrator actually fills us in in verse 18, lets us know what's really going on. The old prophet is lying to the young prophet. He claims that they have a kinship because they're both prophets, but he evidently has some kind of false motive for creating this bond. The young prophet wavers in his resolve once the old prophet plays the fellow prophet card, right? He wavers and he gives in. So what happens next? Verse 20, Here's where it gets really weird. As they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet, the man of Judah, right? No, the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your father's. And after he'd eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. So the weirdness kicks up a notch here. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet during lunch, but not the prophet you think. Not the young Judah prophet who had already been proved a true prophet, but the old Bethel prophet who has already been proved a liar. The lying prophet, that yes man of false worship at Bethel, delivers a genuine word from God, a word of judgment against the true prophet, the defender of true worship. Huh? And lest we think that the narrator is mistaken in calling this oracle a word from the Lord, the old prophet's words are soon proved true. And the young prophet, as he goes home, is killed by a lion. The old prophet is not condemned by God for his lie, nor is the young prophet excused for being deceived. And the strangeness continues. Verse 26, when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord God spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! And after he buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. I'm giving up on this story. This is too weird. What is happening here? Even the animals involved behave strangely in this story. The lion's behavior is this weird mixture of random violence and unnatural docility. But even more strange than the lion is the old prophet. We might presume by now that that old prophet lied to the young prophet out of hostility or malice, but his words and actions toward the deceased prophet show nothing but sympathy, grief, and kinship now. He honors the young prophet and his body by mourning him, by burying him in his own family plot, his own grave, and and makes instructions that he will join him when he passes away. He acknowledges that these events have actually proved the truthfulness of the young prophet's predictions about the fate of the northern kingdom. So what is up with this old, lying Bethel prophet? That's the question that we're left with as the story wraps up. And there's this little tag on the story in verses 33 and 34. After this thing, Jeroboam, remember, that's the king of the north, did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. 
any who would he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. This coda to the story adds one final note of strangeness. It suggests that Jeroboam gets word of the story of the two prophets, but that it ultimately makes no difference to his royal behavior. Even though he had initially been very willing to extend hospitality to this young prophet for his mercy, for his truthful words, for the signs that were powerful at Bethel, and this unsatisfying ending leaves us with several questions. What was the point of all this? How is any of this fair? Why do the characters act the way they do in this story? And most importantly, why does God act and speak the way that he does in this story? Well, I think one key to the story is this little phrase in verse 33, after this thing. Jeroboam the king evidently hears this story and is supposed to draw some kind of lesson from this story about prophets. In other words, this story of an interaction between prophets was supposed to be for the ears of the king. Evidently, God had it intended it that way, but Jeroboam chooses not to learn whatever that lesson is. But the lesson, I think, is there nonetheless if we have eyes and ears of faith to see it. The story of the two prophets is really a story about the two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. We might call this weird story an allegory or a real-life parable in which these figures, by God's inspiration, kind of play out the entire history of the divided kingdom before it happens. It's a parable of the kingdom, a story with a twist, like Jesus' stories, that is meant to cut us open, to test our hearts, to reveal whether we truly want to be a part of God's kingdom or just simply a part of the kingdoms of earth. So let's consider for our last few minutes how these two prophets play out the big story of their two kingdoms and ultimately the story of God's kingdom. Well, first of all, this weird story of the two prophets who are actually a parable of two kingdoms, they show a weird mixture of hostility and friendship with each other. Despite their radically different masters, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and their very different agendas, the true worship in Jerusalem versus the false worship at Dan and Bethel, they do still share a bond as prophets. And this bond complicates their relationship. Even the old prophet's lie was apparently intended to initiate some kind of relationship with the young prophet. Likewise, as we're drawing the analogy now to the kingdoms, after Solomon's united kingdom divided under Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the two kingdoms had this uneasy relationship where they were kind of one nation, and, but kind of two nations, right? It was, it was a relationship both of occasional treaties and border wars between the two. They were no longer one Israel like they'd been under Saul, David, and Solomon, but they were both still kind of Israel, right? The very fact that southern prophets like Amos and this unnamed young prophet would travel up to Bethel speaks to the continued bond and shared concern between Israel and Judah. They were brothers who were estranged. Their current hate actually arose from their love and their similarity and their shared origin. Think about some of the things that happen as the story plays out. We don't have time to read them, but occasionally there was war between north and south. This king warred with this king their entire reign. But then you read a few chapters along and they make treaties with each other. Ahab, the wicked king, makes a treaty with the righteous king Jehoshaphat in the south. And Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are, Ahab. My people is your people. That's weird. They're both against each other and they, they need each other. It's a weird mixture of hostility and friendship between these two kingdoms, just like between the two prophets. Well, that brings us to us. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as members of the Lord's church, aren't we familiar with this strange mix, mixture of hostility and friendship with the kingdoms of this world or with rival kingdoms? There is a family resemblance, maybe a faint family resemblance, between the true kingdom of heaven and some of its knockoff versions out there. And the knockoff versions often hold more appeal than the genuine article, don't they? Yet we must know the difference. We much, must decide which king and kingdom to serve. Now, I want to push us beyond a shallow or convenient application here. I'm not talking about you need to find the church with the right name on the sign. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about true and false ways of really being a disciple of King Jesus. 
That's a little bit deeper. That's a heart issue. False kingdoms of heaven share some superficial similarities with the kingdom of heaven, but they're more concerned about controlling religion like Jeroboam did, making it safe and comfortable, making convenient alliances with politics and nationalism, or equating our cultural preferences, however noble they seem, with God's actual desires, God's prophetic word. We baptize our desires as God's desires. And many who serve in these counterfeit kingdoms in our culture are our friends and neighbors, and God forbid, they sometimes include us. The borders between the two kingdoms can be fuzzy, can't they? Like the border between Israel and Judah. The lies can be difficult to detect, even with the eyes of faith. And yet, by God's grace, apostate Israel, in the spiritual sense, is still Israel. God knows who are his, and he labors for their salvation. He sends prophets to his wayward people. God sends his prophets across that fuzzy border all the time. These prophets are nameless, their work is thankless, and the hours and pay are terrible. If he calls you, will you be willing to show the obedience and courage to go and speak to those people who are not our people and yet still kind of are our people or could be? When we do go and speak, Will we have the resolve to return home quickly without compromising our mission or believing convenient lies? So that's one lesson I think we can take away. Second lesson I think we can take away from this parable of two prophets that's actually a parable of two kingdoms. This strange prophet story shows a surprising and humbling reversal. The prophet who lied, the one that we righteous folk would single out for God's judgment, He is the one who announces a genuine word of judgment against the true man of God. God's chosen agent in this story is shocking, infuriating, and offensive to our sensibilities. God got it wrong, it seems like. He got it backwards. Well, this dynamic plays out in the life of the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, as the story goes on in 2 Kings. Judah is the kingdom of promise, right? It's the place where David's reign continues through his descendants. It's the site of the temple that God had ordained Solomon to build. It's the place of the, the, the priests and the kings, right? Whereas Israel up north is that breakaway nation with an upstart royal line, an idolatrous perversion of worship. We righteous folk would single out that latter nation, the northern kingdom, for God's judgment, wouldn't we? And yet, as the history plays out, it's not quite that simple. God sometimes uses upstarts from the north, both prophets and kings, to bring surprising judgment against his holy people. One example is a northern upstart named Jehu, uh, who brings judgment not only against the wicked kings of the north, but also carries that over into the wicked kings of the south who had been flirting with the Baal worship of the north. And so not only does King Joram, Ahab's evil son, get killed by Jehu, but Ahaziah, descendant of David, the chosen seed, also is killed by Jehu because he flirted with the Baal worship of the north. Well, Jehu was no prize. He was a brash, bloodthirsty villain by all accounts. All you have to do is read the story um, a few chapters down the line in 1 Kings. You, don't, you won't like Jehu. At least I don't think you will. But he, and he ended up being a pretty bad king who perpetuated the Bethel and Dan worship that Jeroboam had started. And yet, God used that guy to judge and humble David's kingly line in Judah when they had crossed the line. God even commended Jehu. This is the end of the passage in 2 Kings 9 and 10. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well, your sons to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. Huh? Just like God spoke through that lying old prophet, God shockingly spoke through a bloody assassin in his people's history to get his true kingdom's attention. Well, the shock and the scandal of God is the point. God occasionally humbles his chosen people when they are stiff-necked by speaking to them through those who are not his people, at least not in the same special sense. When nothing else will get the saints' attention, a little divine unfairness just might. Just ask the prophets Jonah and Habakkuk about that, right? God is willing to scandalize us into repentance and renewal when necessary. 
Again, we need to be sure to take the right lesson away from this and not the wrong one. God can use anyone, including brash, wicked sinners, to advance his kingdom is a true biblical principle. Amen. This public figure I kind of like is a brash, wicked sinner, ergo God is definitely using him or her to advance his kingdom, is a false inverse of that point, and it doesn't even follow logically. However, Christians are increasingly susceptible to flawed logic like this to justify our own cultural or political tastes, rather than allowing God to call us personally and collectively to repentance and humility through the world events going on around us. So I think the better lesson that we should be open to given stories like this is that God, our true king, may be prophetically speaking to us, the true church, quote unquote, via flawed figures, flawed institutions, flawed events that we don't always like in order to chasten and humble his church, to remind us that we haven't cornered the market on the truth. God's Spirit may be speaking a surprising true word of correction to us, his people, via lying prophets in the surrounding culture, but only if we're willing to listen, and if we're only willing to listen to our in-group of yes-man prophets, we may not hear God's rebuke, and we may not make the corrections that he desires. Think, for example, how the mid-20th century American civil rights era, which addressed many societal injustices that needed to be addressed, was resisted by many Christians at the time, often just because they didn't like the flawed messengers that were being used. The church should be a voracious consumer of the truth, God's truth, because all truth is God's truth, whatever its source, and we should weigh that against Scripture honestly. This requires wisdom, it requires prayerful discernment, and it requires the humility of Jesus Christ. The truths that we need to hear the most may be the truths that kill us, at least that kill our pet sins, our sacred cows, our costly pride. Well, finally, I think this story of the two prophets that's really a parable of two kingdoms hints at restoration through resurrection. There's an odd focus in this story on the young prophet's dead body, right? The lion doesn't maul it. Both animals stand respectfully at attention beside it until the old prophet gets there. And the old prophet makes meticulous arrangements to have it buried in his own plot so that his bones will one day rest with the bones of the man of God from Judah. All these details suggest that there's something powerful about these prophet bones. What's the big deal about a bunch of prophet bones? There was nothing magical or miraculous about the, the bones themselves and their material structure, but they were significant inasmuch as they belonged to a man who was a mouthpiece for the true word of God. Even a flawed man who had endured God's very sharp judgment cost him his life. Bones normally represent the end of existence, the finality of death. But the bones of a prophet of God? Well, maybe that's a different matter. Maybe in the upside-down, topsy-turvy kingdom of God, maybe those bones aren't the end of the story. Again, remember, the two prophets represent the story of two kingdoms, north and south. The old prophet understands that God is with the young dead prophet in a special way, that he's not with him. And he wants the young prophet's bones around to protect his own bones. Why? Because he seems to understand what's coming. The true king is coming, and he's coming with a fierce vengeance to throw down false worship, to restore the worship of God, and not even the bones of false worship will be safe when that happens. This is, of course, King Josiah, whom the young prophet had foretold at the beginning of the story, and his word comes true in 2 Kings 23. The altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, the altar with the high place, Josiah pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. But that wasn't enough for Josiah. He turned and saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, what's that monument I see? And the men of city told him, it's the tomb of that man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And Josiah said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alo alone along with 
the bones of the lying prophet who had come out of Samaria. Josiah, like the southern prophets, travels up from the south into the north country to cleanse it. This is after the bulk of the northern kingdom has already gone into, away into Assyrian captivity. Well, in order to finish his thorough cleansing of Bethel, Josiah doesn't even let the bones of false worship rest in peace. But there's one exception. He does find the tomb of these two prophets from so long ago, and out of respect for the young Judah prophet who had predicted Josiah's coming, Josiah leaves his bones and the old lying prophet's bones alone. In other words, the young prophet's bones have saved the old prophet's bones by association. They're just bones, though, right? What's the big deal about the legacy of two dead prophets? What good is it for your bones to be preserved? Well, I think the big deal, again, is that this is a parable, a real-life parable. These prophets represent their two kingdoms, and their bones, what happens to their bones, represents what happens to these two kingdoms. Both kingdoms eventually will go into exile as punishment for breaking God's covenant and worshiping other gods, and both are seemingly brought to an end. Remember, the kingdoms of earth say that sin and death are the king. Sin and death reign, and they will have the last word. But prophet bones, prophet bones have God's spirit within them, and so do the bones of God's kingdoms. Even the rejection of the northern kingdom may not be as final as it seems. Maybe there's still hope, even for people who have been so wayward from God. Because of the north's association with the southern kingdom, which it never finally broke. That southern kingdom carried the seed, right? The seed of David, the temple of God. Maybe these bones, even though they're just bones, can bring forth new life. Maybe there could be a new beginning after exile and death, even for those who've been scattered to the winds. Maybe the faithfulness of a few in the favored southern kingdom could mysteriously play a saving role in the final destiny of that rejected northern kingdom. In fact, a few chapters before, the bones of a northern prophet named Elisha had proved this very point. If you want an even weirder Old Testament story, it's this one. So Elisha the prophet died, and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Again, huh? Elisha was a faithful prophet of God in the north, a lone voice of truth in the north, and after his death, Just a mere accidental contact with his bones had brought a dead corpse to life. Here is the parable of the kingdom of heaven. Here is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And for those of us with ears to hear, let's hear. Those of us who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven may have little power or influence on our own. We may feel little more effective in our life than a pile of bones in the ground. But, like the bones in the prophet Ezekiel's vision, remember the valley of dry bones, or even the story of Elisha, even at our lowest, we have God's Spirit stirring within us, ready to bring life out of death. Who knows what God's Spirit could do when others touch our dead bones? Your faithful presence, your steady, holy discipleship every day means much to God. You are seen by God even when it's not bearing much visible fruit right now. Your ordinary obedience, your faithful witness will echo into eternity. In the kingdom of heaven, the least shall be the greatest. And of course, this is exactly the hope of the Christian, isn't it? That our physical death, our physical burial plot is not the end of our story. Thanks be to God, our dead bones will be raised. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Restoration through resurrection. And the sign and guarantee of this resurrection hope, of course, is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he himself told us, John chapter 12. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them in response to this request, we wish to see Jesus. 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. Thus says the Lord, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In light of these words of our King Jesus, let's heed the prophetic word of 1 Kings 13. It is time for the judgment of this world. And that includes, when necessary, judgment on God's church, on us. But the ultimate purpose of God's judgment of his people is always restoration and the casting out of this world's false rulers. Kings stand under prophets, and prophets stand under the true king. And the true king has shown us what his kingdom is like. Cross, then resurrection. Judgment, then restoration. Death, followed by new life. And what will life in the restored kingdom of heaven be like? As we conclude, let's think about that weird detail we didn't talk about. The lion and the donkey standing at attention, not harming one another, not afraid of one another. We have a hint of the restored kingdom of heaven and the life in that kingdom in 1 Kings 13. It's this strange little detail of the lion and donkey standing peaceably together over the prophet's body. Even this odd detail hints at a bigger theme of Scripture that we see in Isaiah 11. God's future peaceable kingdom in which aggressors lay down their aggression and all the conflict that characterizes the kingdoms of earth are transformed into cooperation and kinship. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even the animal kingdom. This is not merely a pie in the sky kumbaya hope for Christians, though. As the church, we are the future kingdom of God in the present. We are called by God to live out this impossible vision of peace now, made possible by God's Spirit, and to give the world a glimpse of the kingdom that Jesus the King is bringing. The church that lives and works together in peace is the scandalous prophetic word of God, the gospel of King Jesus the Lord to this world. Let's bring that message to our community this week and this year. Praise God for his prophetic word that brings life to the dead. If Monty asks, we covered the entire former and latter prophets today. You probably feel like we did by now. Let's stand and sing.